Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, states of high concentration, human sexuality, blockchain, science fiction, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Lee Brazington about practicing the jhanas. The jhanas refers to a Buddhist system of eight altered states of consciousness that arise during periods of high concentration. Lee Brazington has been practicing meditation for decades and is the senior American student of the late venerable Aya Kema. Lee began assisting her in 1994 and began teaching retreats on his own in 1997. He teaches in Europe and North America and is the author of the book Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas. Find out more about Lee's teaching and schedule at leeb.com. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Diving Deep into the Jhanas. Hi, Lee. Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. Uh, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Yeah. I was just thinking how nice it is to be able to actually do this in person, which I don't get to do that often. Yeah, this is very excellent. So Lee, you are famous for teaching the jhanas, which in American meditation practice or Buddhist circles is sort of the inferior function. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm not so uh, worried what American faction is up on. I'm much more interested in what the Buddha had to say. After all, he was the guy we can be quite sure knew what he was talking about. Yeah, due to the vagaries of history, And uh, most American practice, especially in Vipassana lineages, these days coming through Ajahn Chah, there's a pretty strong de-emphasis on jhana, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. In fact, we could take it not just to Ajahn Chah, who did practice the jhanas, apparently. There's a lot of input from the Mahasi tradition. In Mm -hmm. fact, I would say that perhaps nationwide there's more Mahasi influence than Ajahn Chah influence. But the basic thing is that it's Theravadan influence. And Theravadan Buddhism is basically Vasudhimaga Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Now, the jhanas are a big part of what you find in the Vasudhimaga. But what you find in the Vasudhimaga for the jhanas are states that are so extremely concentrated, extremely altered, that almost nobody can actually achieve these states. So it makes no sense to teach things that people can't do. So rather than exploring what possibly they can do for concentration, it seems it just got ignored. Yeah, this what you're describing reminds me of the descriptions of uh, practice that I hear from the Pau Auk Sayadaw folks. Yeah, Pau Auk Sayadaw, I've actually sat with him. He's brilliant. If you want to learn Vasudhimaga Buddhism, he's the guy. Everything that he teaches is very firmly grounded in the Vasudhimaga, and his jhanas do seem to replicate what is described in the Vasudhimaga. If I'm not mistaken, and I'll, I'll just back up here for some listeners who don't know what we're talking about at all, jhana practice would be straight up concentration practice rather yes. than 
Vipassana practice, which has more to do with deconstructing the sensory phenomena moment by moment. Would you agree with that short description? Right. I would, I would put it that concentration practice is generating indistractability, so you don't get lost when you're doing something, and then taking the indistractable mind and for your Vipassana practice, investigating what's actually happening. Yes. So there's these, let's say, two wings of practice or two directions of practice. And of course, they reinforce each other and help each other. And Pau Oksayada is famous for being sort of the hardest of hard noses about what counts as real concentration. Like as I read his descriptions, you have to have not even a flutter of distraction in a continuous three-hour meditation for it to count right. as a, quote, real jhana, correct? Right, yeah. It seems, if you take all of the people teaching jhanas worldwide, that each one of them describes a system. And if you're doing their system, that's the real jhanas. And if you have more concentration than their system, you're indulging. And if you don't have as much concentration, of course, it's not the real jhanas. And everybody agrees that their system is correct. (laughs) (laughs) Strangely, they have the right one. Yes. Why is there such a discrepancy about what counts as a real jhana? And furthermore, why does it have to have the seal of approval? I think part of the problem is what we have is the Buddha's sermons, not his meditation instructions, for the most part. We get a little bit of meditation instruction, but it's a little bit. And what we have was preserved in an oral tradition for, let's say, approximately three and a half centuries. Yeah, they did not write anything down for at least 300, 350 years. It was all just memorized in the heads of monks until many, many centuries later. Right. And what happens in an oral tradition is that if you have a topic that gets discussed, then stock phrases are generated. And so you're now recounting one of the Buddha's sermons. And when you get to the jhana part, you just say the jhana stock phrase. So any variety in the Buddha's teachings, any details and so forth, all just begin to blend together into this basically one stock phrase for each of the jhanas. So stock phrase is more of an indication that you should practice the jhana at this point, rather than how to practice the jhanas. Uh, In teaching jhanas, it's become quite apparent that written descriptions of them generally don't suffice. What's good is to give a description, either orally or written, and then have somebody go try out the instructions, and then have a one-on-one interview to sort of fine-tune it. So we didn't get the one-on-one interviews preserved. We just got the general description, not even the general instructions, but the general description. Given that we don't have a lot of detail, there is quite a lot of latitude of sort of trying to figure out, okay, what does this actually mean? And we wind up with literally probably more than a dozen descriptions of what the real jhanas are. And it basically varies on how much indistractability is associated with the states. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of concentration, and there's an infinity of things one could concentrate upon. And knowing that the word 
jhana in Pali or dhyana in Sanskrit basically just means to concentrate or to meditate. Why do we get this phrase that's so pointed or so specific, not jhana, you're concentrated, but the jhanas? Why are there the jhanas? I think primarily because the stock phrase that shows up in the suttas, and this stock phrase appears more than a hundred times. It's, it's quite frequent. And it appears always exactly the same. So it's obviously describing a specific state for each one of the jhanas. And so there is this specific state you're supposed to get into. So it is the jhana. Unfortunately, it's not really well delineated what exactly that state is. And so now we wind up with all these different interpretations. And isn't it the case that the Buddha outlined eight different sort of locations or eight different states or eight different objects of concentration that each qualifies as one of these eight jhanas? Right. Although, interestingly enough, in the suttas, it's spoken of as four jhanas and four immaterial states. Mm. It's not until the Abhidhamma, so say 100 to 200 years after the Buddha, that we start finding the four immaterial states being called the four immaterial jhanas. So, yes, there are these eight states that we now commonly refer to as the eight jhanas, and they are described over and over again in exactly the same way. So clearly there were eight states that were well-known, well-recognized, probably well-delineated at the time of the Buddha, and we don't have much in the way of that delineation to figure out exactly what they were, although there's enough hints around to give us some pretty good ideas. Now, the Buddha, of course, was not born a Buddhist. He was raised in the Vedic tradition, sort of pre-Hindu Hinduism, and he learned meditation not from Buddhists, but from these pre-Hindu Vedic teachers. Is it the case that he learned these jhanas and immaterial states from those teachers? We do have a sutta that indicates that he learned what we call the seventh jhana, the realm of nothingness or no-thingness, from his first teacher. And he learned the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception or non-perception, from his second teacher. It says nothing about the first four jhanas or the other two immaterial states. The assumption is that in order to learn seven and eight, he must have learned at least some of the preceding states. But we also have another description that indicates that he stumbled into the first jhana when he was uh, probably an adolescent, so say a quarter of a century before his awakening. So It's quite a beautiful moment, yeah, by a river under a tree. Yeah, sitting under a rose apple tree. Yeah, yeah it is quite a beautiful moment. And he recognizes this is a beautiful state, but apparently does nothing with it. And then we find, okay, he now knows Jhana 7 and 8. Did somebody teach him the first four before he left home? Did he discover those on his own? I mean, we have no idea. He may have gotten the first seven from his first teacher. We just have no idea. We can speculate all we want. We do know that at the point he realized that his fasting almost to death wasn't going to work, he decided he had to do something else and begin exploring the jhanas. So clearly he knew them by that point, but we don't have any hints as to how and when he learned them. 
And so he had learned these from other teachers. One is assuming, or I assume, that the jhanas then are important, and yet they're not the Buddha's unique contribution. Yeah, correct. I would say his unique contribution is recognizing that when you have a well-concentrated mind, a post-jhanic mind, that you now have a mind that can more accurately investigate reality. And that was the thing. Concentrate your mind and then investigate what's actually happening. That was his real contribution. And when we say investigate what's actually happening, that's what we would today call Vipassana. Correct. Yeah, so we're going to use the concentration that we've gained in jhana practice to then closely examine our own sensory experience. Correct. Yeah. And so how come almost nobody today does the jhanas and goes straight to Vipassana? (laughs) Okay, well, as we discussed earlier, exactly what those states were is kind of difficult to ascertain. The names are quite unusual. Yes. So what happened apparently is that over time, the states actually kept getting redefined. When you read what's in the suttas, it's very clear that one still has bodily awareness in the first four jhanas. And then as you begin reading the later material, starting with the Abhidhamma, you see, oh, concentration levels getting stronger, maybe not so much bodily awareness anymore. And then as you keep going through history until you reach the time of the Vasudhimaga, so we're talking eight, nine hundred years after the Buddha's death, there is no bodily awareness at all in any of the jhanas. So clearly things were changing. My best guess as to what was happening, okay, so the Buddha teaches these states and he leaves behind a Sangha. These guys are out practicing in the wilderness. Uh, They got no TV, they got no women, got nothing to do but meditate. No smartphones. No smartphone, nothing like that. Whoever can do these states the deepest, that's the real jhanas. You know, and there's a bunch of guys competing with each other to see who can get the most concentrated. And so over the centuries, the definition of the states actually changed to more and more concentrated states until we literally find in the Vasudhimaga it's saying that only one in a million, most optimistically, of those who come to meditation can get to the first jhana. It's actually in there. It's not phrased quite like that, but that's what it's saying. Whereas at the time of the Buddha, everybody was practicing jhanas. He didn't have a million followers. So there was this sort of uh, jhanic Olympics or jhanic arms race over many centuries where people just got more and more intense about how focused you could possibly get. Correct. That seems to be what's happening. It doesn't take much to examine the various descriptions over the centuries of literature, and you see this quite clearly happening. Okay, well, you know, I have pretty good concentration, and I'm concentrating on a light switch right now. How is that a jhana or not a jhana? Okay, so the jhanas are described in ways that there are certain aspects of it that everybody agrees on. So the first jhana clearly has piti and sukha. We could translate PT as glee, although you see it translated as rapture, uh, euphoria, ecstasy, delight. But I think glee maybe is the best translation. Oh, kind of giggly. Yeah, it's got a giggly quality to it. And it's got a physical component. And then there's sukha, which is happiness, joy. So 
If you're concentrated on something, but you're not manifesting piti and sukha, then it's clearly not a jhana. Now, you could be concentrating and have piti and sukha occurring, and it still not be a jhana. It appears that for it to become a jhana, what's necessary is that the object of your concentration becomes the experience of piti sukha in the first jhana. So it's not just being concentrated, but it being concentrated on a specific object. So is it the case that you can have first level jhana concentration on anything? No, first level jhanic concentration is concentrated on the experience of PT and sukha. And that must be in your body. Well, PT is going to manifest physically. It's going to have a physical component. Sukha, which is emotional, emotional. Yeah. I mean, emotions do have bodily counterparts, so there's going to be somewhat of a counterpart there. The counterpart from Sukha might just be a big grin. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> certainly find when I'm in nice and deep and got nice strong Sukha, that's the physical counterpart to the emotion. So what if I'm sitting here concentrating on this light switch and I get all rapturous and happy? Is that a jhana or not? Can you switch your attention from the light switch to the experience of PT and Sukha and maintain the PT and Sukha while you're focused upon it? If yeah. the answer is yes, then it's the first jhana. Fascinating. So it does in the end come back to returning the attention to the PT Sukha. Yes. It must be in the body. Right. That's interesting to me. And can you work it the other way around where you intentionally generate PT Sukha and then focus on that? Yes. And in fact, what I'm teaching, that's basically what I'm trying to get people to do. In order to generate sustainable PT and Sukha, it's necessary to generate some degree of concentration. In the later commentaries, this basic level of concentration is called access concentration because it gives you access to the jhanas. That phrase doesn't appear in the suttas, but it's a useful pedagogical idea. So you need to generate a certain degree of indistractability. And then the trick that I employed is that you switch from whatever object you were using to generate that indistractability to something pleasant, preferably a pleasant physical sensation. They seem to work better than mental sensations because they tend to be more long-lasting and maybe don't have a story attached to them. Focus on that pleasantness to the exclusion of everything else. And if you do it well enough, it will set up a positive feedback loop of pleasure. Focusing on pleasure is pleasant. Focusing on pleasure pleasantly is more pleasant, right? So it throws in a little more pleasure. Oh, that's even more pleasant, all right? You've got the positive feedback loop, which generates the PT Sukha experience. Now shift your attention to the PT Sukha experience, sustain the PT Sukha and your attention upon it. First jhana. Now, if we were to make this term PT Sukha friendlier and talk about in English in two words or one word, what would you say to focus on? Gleeful happiness. Okay. Joy in your body, something like that. So, something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can do it. And what's interesting in talking to hundreds of students that have experienced this, not everybody experiences exactly the same way. There are degrees of intensity for both the PT and the Sukha. So some people get a lot more rapturous experience. Some people get a lot more joyous experience. 
Some people, it's just kind of mild for both. Some people, it blows the top of their head off. Mm. And you brought up the idea of duration, and that is, in a way, the central point about concentration. Attention is where you want it to be. That's one part of concentration. But the other part is that it's there for as long as you want it to be there, or at least for a long time. So in the Lee Brasington model, how long does attention need to be there to, quote, count? (laughs) Okay, so... I know this is the issue in in the jhanas, right? Right. (laughs) So the word we translate as concentration is samadhi, and I think it's better translated as indistractability. So what does it mean to be indistractable? At access concentration, what I tell students is that you're fully with the object of meditation, your breath, the light switch, whatever it is. And if there are thoughts, they are wispy and in the background and don't pull you off into distraction. So if you can get to that state, then you should stay there for 5 to 10 to 15 minutes before switching from your initial object to the pleasant sensation. So now 5 to 10 to 15 minutes is pretty indefinite. Some people, yeah, they get to access concentration and within a few seconds they can go into the first jhana if they know exactly what to do. Other people need to hang out there for quite a while. When you're first learning these states, it's going to be very helpful if you stay longer in access concentration before you switch to the pleasant sensation to try and trigger the first jhana. Uh, Once you get skilled at it, then yeah, maybe you stay for a little bit before you trigger it, knowing that you could have triggered it earlier, but the fact that you stayed longer will give you a deeper experience. So the answer to your question is, wow, it could be anywhere from a few seconds to several hours. And why is this any better than, let's say, concentrating on a cloud or a rock or any other object? Why do we go into specifically meditating on this joyful happiness or piti sukha? Because it works. I mean, (laughs) that seems to be the thing. People that can access these states, and actually a lot of people do have the ability to access these states, find that particularly moving through one, two, three, four, when they come out of the fourth jhana, They have a mind that, well, as it says in the suttas, is concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability that is quite well suited for inclining and directing to investigating reality. So it seems that moving through these states has the advantage of upping the level of indistractability quite a bit over what you can generate by simply picking some object, the breath, a light switch, a candle, whatever, and just trying to stay with it. The breath or candle or even metta will get you to access concentration. But even coming out of a well-done first jhana, you're going to be more indistractable than you would be coming out of access. And coming out of fourth jhana is it's actually quite remarkable how much more your mind will stay with whatever you want to focus on and how little 
there is of anything else trying to impinge on your mind stream and drag you away. So, in other words, this specific sequence of concentration objects described as the jhanas is a great way to set up your Vipassana practice. Exactly. Okay. But I notice you're stopping at the fourth jhana. Right. Uh, It would appear from the suttas that the fourth jhana was sufficient. Getting to the higher jhanas is a more difficult task. I've had students who were quite good at the first four, but never got beyond that, and yet were able to use the concentration from the first four jhanas to gain insight that was life-transforming. So I tend to sort of try and get people to four and then have them start working with both doing their insight practice in the post-jhanic state of mind, and then sometimes working to see, okay, do they have sufficient concentration to get to the higher jhanas? It would appear that the higher jhanas do indeed give you more indistractability. I notice quite a difference coming out of eighth jhana compared to coming out of fourth jhana in terms of how quiet my mind is and how long it will stay in this really quiet space before it starts thinking about, well, whatever. And the difference between the first four and the second four, the distinguishing factor, if I recall, is that the first four have concrete objects that you're focusing on, and the second four have abstract object to focus on. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it. The first four have concrete emotions that you're focusing on. So the object is an emotion in each of the first four jhanas with a bodily component, a bodily awareness. Okay, so you're aware of your body in each of the four. It's receding further and further into the background as the numbers go up. Well, this is what's so fascinating to me, one of the many things, but the way I learned it, emotions are completely embodied. They may have thoughts that trigger them or thoughts triggered by them, but the emotion itself is a bodily state. And so you would have to have body awareness to be in contact with it. The way I learned it, I would say that emotions are not totally bodily states. Okay, there's a mental aspect to them as well. And for me personally, and remember, I'm a thinking type as opposed to an emotional type. You made your living as a coder, correct? Yeah, I was a computer programmer. I was basically a super coder. Yeah, and an old school computer programmer. Right. Yeah, yeah I started out with coding pads, writing it in pencil. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, for me, the focus in the first four jhanas is the mental aspect of the emotion. Right? Not so much the physical aspect. I'm very aware of the physical aspect in the background, but the foreground is the mental, emotional aspect. Now, to me, when you say mental aspect of an emotion, that's almost impossible. So, to me, there would be thoughts about the feeling or thoughts that are triggering the feeling. So, what do you mean exactly? Okay, it's not thoughts. It's the mental feeling. So that's where I'm like, okay, it's a body sensation. Uh, Well, okay, so not only am I a thinking type, from a perceptual standpoint, I'm visual and then auditory and very little kinesthetic. So we're we're opposites. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it's (laughs) like, yeah, I can 
see the emotional, mental aspect. Mm. And that's what I focus on. It doesn't really matter, though. The whole idea is that you've got this Piti Sukha experience. It's ongoing, and you can stay with it. And whether you call it mental or physical is, well, that's just your concoction for trying to describe it, not your experience. (laughs) Okay, so we go to the mall, we grab a person and sit them down in a nice quiet place, and we say, we're going to teach you a jhana. How long does it take them to learn it? Uh, Six months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Of how much hard effort? Okay, so first got to learn to meditate. Learning to meditate... For some people, it comes quite naturally, and they, they're pretty good at it right away. Other people, it takes quite a while. I would say that it took me about three years to get good enough so that I could start learning the jhanas. Now, three years, it wasn't three years of sitting every day and going to my group every week or anything like that. It was pretty sloppy. So if somebody were really into it, I would say that probably in six months of sitting every day, good instruction, a group that they can go to and get questions answered, do a couple retreats in those six months, yeah, they'd be ready for jhana practice at that point. I understand you teach the jhanas to a lot of people. And I'm just curious, you know, we've got some interesting pushback in the mindfulness community where some people seem to be not benefited that much by mindfulness. They have difficult breakdowns of certain sorts or manifestations that are unpleasant. I'm curious, do you see that often or even at all when people are practicing jhanas? Uh, Yes. At the start of every retreat, I issue two warnings to people. The first warning is if you have expectations, you're in big trouble. Expectations are the worst thing you can bring on any retreat. And if you have expectations of the jhanas, that's just going to get in the way. The second warning is that if you have any unresolved psychological stuff... Which none of us have. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thankfully, we live in California. We got it all taken care of. (laughs) Uh, If you have any unresolved psychological stuff, it may show up. And this happens whether you get to any jhanas or not. It's really a function, seemingly, of concentration. So the people who are practicing vipassana and who are getting into difficult psychological states, it's probably not as much the insights they're getting as the concentration they're generating while they're practicing Vipassana. Because practicing Vipassana, any way that's taught in the West, you're going to get some degree of concentration. You bet. And that can be enough to set you off. Normally, you walk around, and whatever that unresolved stuff is, you got it well under control. You you just keep it all pushed down. You start concentrating, and yeah, it can pop up. You you don't have the energy to keep it pushed down again, because if you did, you wouldn't get concentrated. So concentration can lead us into these difficult states. Why would we do it? Because if you can handle the difficult state when it comes up, You can get it up and out, and it's no longer in there doing whatever it's doing behind the scenes and driving you nuts. Right. So instead of being hidden away in the basement or the closet, you've like cleaned out the basement, cleaned out the closet. Exactly. Exactly. You just need to have some support around because when it comes up, it could be, well, it could be pretty seriously bad. Can you give me an example? This has become one of the repeating themes in the podcast is informed consent for people just to understand some of the stuff that arises. Probably the most common thing that arises is some sort of 
feeling of unworthiness, some sort of low self-esteem. That seems to be our culture's uh, baseline. That seems to be our culture's greatest failing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not surprising that that's what shows up. You might have done some psychological work and you feel good about yourself on the surface, but now you get really quiet and whatever doubts were down there start to surface. Most psychological work seems to go in sort of a half-life form. In other words, you do some psychological work and you get half of that trauma or whatever taken care of and you feel a lot better. But, you know, you get stressed again and here comes up the remaining half and you work on that and you get half of that taken care of. And it just goes on like this. There are enough adverse things that happen to people that, yeah, the half-life is always going to be there in the background and it's going to pop up. And when it pops up, it's not that it pops up with one-eighth the intensity before. It just pops up one-eighth as often as before. Mm. And so uh, if you were working with someone and that popped up, what would you suggest that they do? It depends on exactly how it's manifesting. If in particular it's the low self-esteem, one of the major things I recommend is doing lots of metta practice, and in particular doing metta practice for themselves. Metta loving-kindness practice in the form of, yeah, it's a good thing if I'm happy as opposed to, I deserve to be happy, yeah. right? But more recognizing, yeah, it's a good thing if I'm happy. Yeah, I, I like it when I'm happy. It'd be a really good thing if I were happy. And then for the deserve part, which is often what is behind this, I don't deserve to be happy or I'm a terrible person or something, is to do a meditation and simply list to yourself good things that you've done. Yeah, I helped that old lady across the street the other day. You know, whatever it is, trivial, but at least get your mind out of the negative space and into a positive space. So those are two of the things that are most useful for the lowest self-esteem when that comes up. And would this typically be a replacement for the jhana practice for a while, or is it a addendum, or how do you see that working? In general, it's a replacement unless what comes up is pretty minor and can be addressed quite quickly. In other words, what comes up is probably the, the primary thing that's up right now. And until it's no longer primary, trying to work with jhana practice, it's going to be quite difficult. Now, how long will it take you to get it to where, all right, you didn't solve it completely, but it's not coming up as your distraction when you're meditating. For some people, yeah, maybe it's only a few hours. For some people, yeah, it's the rest of the retreat and another session with their psychotherapist and another retreat. Yeah, so it varies enormously as to the intensity with which it comes up, how strongly it continues to come up, etc. It's so interesting that, and, and in a way it's completely logical, that in order to get into this highly focused place with a still mind, we have to work out some of the turbulent, knotty, difficult stuff in the mind. So you could almost see this kind of material arising as not some kind of blocking of your jhana, but actually the real thing you're trying to do with your meditation in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Well right? put. I came, uh, my teacher would say, a moment of concentration is a moment of purification. And so, yeah, bringing this stuff up is purification practice. It's not pleasant, but it's definitely a really powerful and positive thing to do. It's just not any fun. 
And, and so purification used in that way is sometimes confusing. I think the idea is that you're unknotting the tangledness of your psychology, or how would you talk about that purification to an average Westerner? We don't tend to use the word that way, right? Right. The simile from the suttas is a piece of cloth. And if your piece of cloth is really dirty and you try and dye it, you're going to have a mess. You know, the dye's not going to go in evenly or smooth or anything like that. And if you wash it, the dye comes off on the dirt. Right, exactly. So you want a nice, clean piece of cloth that will accept the dye, all right? It will accept a different view, basically, all right? So most of what goes on in our minds is self-centered. We operate from a very egocentric perspective. And that egocentric perspective is primarily about protection, although there is a fair amount of wanting pleasure, right? So greed and fear, right? So if we're coloring our mind with looking to be safe and trying to get some happiness, for me, we're going to have problems seeing what's actually going on. Right? And if the tendencies, the habits of mind, the unresolved trauma is popping up there, it's soiling the mind so that the dye of reality can't come in there and actually color your mind so you can see what's actually happening. So I think that's the best analogy I can give you. Yeah, so this wanting to be safe and also desiring pleasure of various sorts amounts to a kind of a bias. Yes. And the idea is that this concentration practice is removing the bias over time. Yes. Or straightening out the bias. Removing it at least temporarily to be able to get into the jhanas. One of the prerequisites is mentioned repeatedly in the suttas is the necessity of abandoning the five hindrances. The five hindrances being sense desire, anger and ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and doubt. Or we could say pleasure-seeking, fear, too little energy, too much energy, and doubt. So the first two, the pleasure-seeking and the fear, are the ones that are generally the ones that are coloring our minds as we go through our day. And we've got to set that aside. So it's necessary to set these aside long enough and strong enough to be able to get into these jhanic states. Getting into these jhanic states gives you a mind that, because of its indistractability, is less likely to fall back into those old pleasure-seeking, fear-running patterns. And while you're not falling into that, you're now looking at the world from a less egocentric perspective and have a much better chance of seeing what's actually happening. The idea behind seeing what's actually happening is that if you can operate in harmony with what's actually happening, rather than your desires and fears, your life is going to go much easier. Yes. And you may have deep insight into your own experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. This is definitely happens along the way. Yeah. So what do you see besides the self-doubt or the negative self-talk coming up that you wish you could just communicate to everyone who's trying to do jhanas all over the world? What's like the one thing that is just 
always apparent. You wish you could just broadcast to the universe. I have to stop and think about it because the self-doubt, low self-esteem is so huge. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Mm. Okay. Looking for their pleasure in things that aren't going to give them lasting satisfaction. Looking for safety in places that actually aren't going to be safe. So, So unwise action. Yeah, unwise action, action that actually isn't going to lead to the result that you're hoping for when you undertake the action. It's been quite interesting now that we have pictures into a huge number of people's minds with all of the interconnected, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything else, and watch what people are up to and where they're trying to get their happiness and how they're trying to be safe and yeah, this culture has failed miserably at actually providing sustainable sources of happiness and sustainable places of safety. So is a big part of your work with people just helping them to be a little less damaging with their lives? Yeah, though that's not my direct work. My direct work is, all right, here's how you can concentrate your mind. And then once they've got that down, Here's how you can use your concentrated mind to investigate reality. And then the investigation of reality leads to, okay, here's how you can live your life Mm -hmm. in a less damaging fashion. Mm -hmm. But I don't go directly to that. It's more like I'm teaching technique. (laughs) There are teachers out there who are, you know, almost anti-technique. And so, and I'm very much technique-oriented. I mean, you know, what we know from the Buddha, he had techniques and he was teaching them. And so I'm laying out the techniques that I have found helpful to me and saying, all right, try out these techniques and see if they're helpful for you. Okay, so here we have someone, they're able to contact this Piti Sukha that we were talking about for 5 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And now what? Okay, so... That's the first jhana. All right, so you get to the first jhana. The first jhana is probably not the greatest place to hang out because the PT can be a bit too agitating. Like I mentioned earlier, it might blow the top of your head off. So it could be too strong. So what What, you want to... What does that look like, having the PT be too strong? uh, It generally tends to manifest physically as either vibration. Okay, so you're just sitting there with this energy running through you that's causing you to vibrate. And or as heat, you're getting basically a hot flash. Yeah. All right. So So it's actually uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's so pleasant, it's not even pleasant. Yeah. All right. So the thing to do is to chill this down somewhat. Move to a place that is less physical and more emotional, despite our differences <laughs> discussing this. So you want to come from a, an agitated physical place with the PT predominating to the PT being more in the background and the sukha, the joy-happiness predominating. So now that you're focused on the experience of joy-happiness, however that manifests for you. That's the second jhana. So it goes from PT sukha to just sukha. No, it goes from PT sukha to sukha PT. <laughs> okay. Sukha being in the foreground, PT being in the background in the second jhana. Mm-hmm. Right? It says, with the subsiding of thinking and more thinking... Right? So the mind becomes much more collected. 
and by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, so things calm down mentally, inner tranquility, unification of mind, the mind focuses in more on the sukha PT experience. It's less likely to wobble, and you're really becoming absorbed into the joy-happiness experience with some background PTs. you still got physical energy running in the background. And this is a much more sustainable place. The first jhana, if you've got it really strong, <laughs> you may not want to be there more than 30 seconds. Anybody who's got it really strong tries to run it for 10 minutes. They're actually going to have negative effects when they get up. But most what, people, what do the negative effects look like? Uh, just agitated, just mm. very agitated. The PT is still there. And if you do that before going to bed, you're not going to sleep. You come in to meditate the next sitting after you're doing this very agitated walking and you're still agitated, you can't get settled. I mean, these, these are all possibilities. And it's just unpleasant. So you get the first jhana really strong. You won't stay there long. You'll calm things down to get to the second. The second, you can stay there you know, with no problem as long as you can maintain it. Now, these jhanic states are dependent on neurotransmitters, obviously, since all mental states are dependent on neurotransmitters. We don't know for sure what they are. I have my theories. My current theory is PT is dopamine breaking down into norepinephrine, and uh, sukha is opioids, mm -hmm. right? Now, you've only got a yeah, limit. Endorphins. Endorphins, yeah. yeah. You only got a limited amount of that stuff. You know, it's not like you can generate it as fast as you can use it in these states. So for most people, they get in, say, to the second jhana, and they're running all these opioids. And, yeah, you know, sort of the reservoir runs dry, and it begins to tail off and get quiet, which is okay, because if you know what to do, you just simply ride that down into the third jhana, where the PT has gone away, and the joy-happiness is now more contentment. Or you can, you know, hang out in the second jhana for a while, and then intentionally move on to the third jhana, where the PT's gone, so now physically you're very quiet and still, and you're focused on the feeling of contentment. And let's say someone was pretty good at doing the third jhana. Would they run through the first and second one relatively quickly, only a few moments or a few minutes, and then straight into the third jhana? Is that the idea? I would say a few minutes, not moments. And I would say that on a retreat where you're doing multiple sitting meditation periods a day, occasionally you would want at least the second jhana, you'd want to hang out in it for you know at least five minutes or so. Right, Just give it time to get in there and you get better skilled at it as opposed to just always running on to the third. If someone learned the first four, and one, yeah, you get skilled at that, you're not going to stay long there. And this sitting, you spend five minutes in the second one and a little time in the third one, and then you hang out in four. Next time through, a little time in the first, a little time in the second, and a little longer time in the third, you hang out in four. Next time through, you spend a lot of time in the second, a lot of time in the third, and it's less time in four. You know, so you're varying it, so you keep your skill at each of these jhanic levels as opposed to just blasting through. This has two effects. One, your skill gets better. And two, staying longer in a jhana will enhance the next jhana. Mm. So if you run too fast through number two, you're going to have a week three. So stay longer in two and let it build, and your three will be better. 
Now, the difference between jhana 1 and jhana 2 is pretty clear the way you described it, but the difference between 2 and 3 is not as clear in my mind yet. They are actually quite distinct. In 2, there's a residual of PT, a residual of physical, energetic, we could even say agitation. You did say that, yeah. Yeah, in the background. Mm -hmm. And in 3, it's totally calm physically. In the suttas, it says of the third jhana, one experiences happiness with the body. All right? And so the experience of happiness with the body in the third jhana is not so much due to the sukha, I mean, it does have its bodily component, but due to the tranquility of having exhausted the piti. You could think of the tranquility of the third jhana, the happiness with the body of the third jhana, much like a post-orgasmic glow. Mm-hmm. All right, So you get all this excited and agitated in the first and second, and now in the third, you're in this afterglow of all that piti, and your mind is, yeah, really in a very contented space. You got a whole bunch of excitement. You don't need that anymore. All right? You fulfilled your dopamine craving (laughs) and you just got some nice opioids and it's got you in a really nice contented place and you're just happy to hang out there. Good. So that's very clear. So here we are glowing with endorphins or whatever. How do we then move into the fourth jhana? Fourth jhana is described as a state beyond pleasure and pain. Well, the pleasure of that contentment is very obvious in the third. So the trick is simply let go of any pleasure in your mind. I find that in the first jhana, I've got a big grin. You can see my teeth. Second jhana, I've got a big smile, no teeth. Third jhana, I've got a wispy Buddha smile. All I have to do to go to the fourth is put my attention in the physical sensations of that wispy Buddha smile and then relax all the muscles in my face. When I do, there's a sense of things starting to drop down, and I just shift my attention to this feeling of dropping down and go with it and let it settle into a place of quiet stillness, which turns out to be emotionally neutral. Nothing positive, nothing negative. That's the fourth jhana. And where would your attention be at that moment? On the quiet stillness. And where is that located? Yeah, you still want it embodied someplace. I I didn't say it had to be in the body. (laughs) I just am asking, where is it? You don't have to have a where in Mm -hmm. order to focus on it. Yeah, true. Okay, so if I told you where it was for me, it might be somewhere else for you. Mm -hmm. So it really isn't a useful piece of information. It's wherever you find it, okay? Are you going to find it looking outside anywhere? When you're in the fourth jhana, you're going to feel like you're quite cocooned, Mm. right? You might find the front of the cocoon is maybe a foot in front of your face, you know, and it comes up pretty much almost touching your back, you know, and you're in this sort of egg-shaped cocoon there. And you're going to find the quiet stillness within that cocoon. Now, whether it's in front of you or inside of you, it just depends on how it manifests. It's been interesting teaching over the years and having people describe how they 
are experiencing each of these jhanas and the little aids and whatnot that they find that are helpful for them to know where to put their mind exactly. Uh, some people see colors with the jhanas. Some people want to associate the four jhanas with the four seasons. I mean, you get all sorts of stuff like this happening. And it's like, okay, whatever helps you find and maintain these states is fine. So the where the quiet stillness is, is where you find it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really matter. And so do you find that people want to hang out in this fourth jhana state basically forever? Yeah, you often hear something from Western teachers about, yeah, you can get addicted to the jhanas. And yeah, people can become jhana junkies. Though as I came and said, would you rather live in a neighborhood full of heroin junkies or jhana junkies? You just used a name there. Ayakema was my teacher. Oh, so Ayakema said this. Right. Yes. Yeah. She was very serious and she had a great sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my job as a teacher is to keep an eye on the students once they've learned the fourth jhana, I say something like, okay, what sort of insight practice are you going to be working on? Or I think you should work on this as an insight practice. And okay, now go away and work on the fourth jhana and then practice your insight practice. And if they come back and all they did was fourth jhana and didn't do their insight practice, then I'm going to come down hard on them. All right. But most people, you know, they're sort of grudgingly go play with an insight practice. And when they suddenly get the flood of insights, like they never got from that practice before, then the jhana junkie is cured because the insights are actually far more interesting than just getting high and hanging out. This is the central insight of the Buddha, correct? That these jhanas are incredibly powerful as a let's say, setup and purification and preparation, and they are intrinsically pleasant, and yet they're really the doorway to do the insight practice. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, I've referred to the jhanas as a warm-up exercise. Now, they do have their own intrinsic usefulness, right? So now you... <laughs> begin to learn that, oh, yeah, there's positive mental states inside of me that don't require an external trigger. And that's kind of a useful thing to know, so you don't go looking in all the wrong places. Right? So in that sense, there's that insight from hanging out in these states. Hanging out in these states does change you. You know, neuroscience has found that whatever mental states you tend to hang out in are, well, that's going to become your default. And it's possible to move your emotional default more towards the positive if you just go hang out in more positive states. And the first four jhanas are obviously very positive states. So hanging out in them is going to make you a happier person. Of course, that's probably a long-term project. You probably got to practice jhanas pretty seriously for five years before you start noticing anything like that. And you probably can't determine, oh, yeah, the fact that I'm happier now is 23% due to the jhanas <laughs> and 64% due to the insight. And, you know, I mean, that's not you know, going to be possible. But I think long-term, yeah, the benefits of just doing jhana practice are going to make you at least somewhat happier. So there are other things other than them just being warm-up exercise for insight, but I would say the warm-up exercise for insight is the best part of practicing them. Jhanas are so powerful and beautiful. I'm always surprised how often bringing them up elicits a negative response from other meditators. Yeah. 
There's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of topics, but this one in particular, I think part of it is competitiveness. You know, I've got to practice. I don't do jhanas. I'm doing fine. What are you trying to push on me? You know, don't say that you're better than me because you do jhanas. I mean, you know, this sort of thing comes up. So the meditative competitiveness. Right. I think that's one of it. Two, these people may have been cautioned against them by their misguided teachers. You know, when the hippies went to Asia and began studying with the teachers over there, those teachers weren't going to try to teach them Vasudhi Maga jhanas, which is basically Theravadan Buddhism's understanding of the jhanas, because, I mean, even the Asian monks couldn't do them for the most part. So these hippies, they don't have a chance. So they poo-pooed them, and the teachers come back and poo-poo them as well. So there's a lot of poo-pooing of jhanas. So people who are opposed to them may have heard their teachers poo-pooing them, and, and they take that on as part of what's going on. Well, this is what you typically hear is, oh, you're going to get stuck in the jhana, or as you said, you're going to become addicted, and right. they're not intrinsically awakening. Right. They're not intrinsically awakening. And if you want to go to Muir Woods from Oakland, the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge is not Muir Woods, but it's actually a very useful thing to have along the way. Otherwise, you're going to need to swim across the bay. Right? <laughs> the road to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon, but without the road, it's going to be a lot harder to get there. Yeah, They are not awakening, but they are certainly a useful tool along the road to awakening. So, uh, And yeah, like I say, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And it's really a shame. I mean, I do what I can to try and correct that. But, you know, I mean, if everybody would listen to me, they'd have a much happier life. But a lot of people just don't pay attention. I don't understand. Exactly. That's why we're doing this podcast. Right. (laughs) So we've talked about four jhanas. And yet in most lists, there are eight jhanas. The second four being the immaterial jhanas. How do we approach these immaterial jhanas? What does it even mean to be immaterial? Okay, so that's the designation that they were given, right? In the sense that there's no bodily awareness. So they are arupa. Okay, rupa. Without form. Without form, right? So the first four are called the rupa jhanas, the material jhanas, not because they are material, but because there is bodily awareness in each of these. It says that one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the piti and sukha, or whatever the object is. Right? So you, in order to drench deep, saturate, suffuse your body, you need to have bodily awareness. Now you're saying that list really fast. What is it? Drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse. (laughs) (laughs) This is a typical thing you find in Pali to emphasize something. They throw a lot of very similar meaning words together. In fact, the words vitaka and vichara actually just is thinking and more thinking, not initial and sustained attention. That only shows up in the commentaries and Mm. later. Mm. Okay, It's just emphasizing, oh, there's thinking in the first jhana, and it gets quiet in the second when that goes away. Okay, so drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse just means fill your body with the piti sukha experience. In the first jhana? In the first and second, and then the third with the sukha experience, and in the fourth with the quiet stillness, right? The pure, bright mind is actually what it says. Okay, but we could say the quiet stillness. Mm. The instructions for the fifth jhana, 
the first immaterial, is by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations, right? So right off, you need to have a level of concentration that you're no longer aware of bodily sensations. So in order to get to these higher jhanas, you need a really good fourth jhana, right? So you've got to get skilled at the first four before you're ready to tackle the higher ones. But if you manage to get to the fifth and higher, then, as I mentioned earlier, your concentration level goes up quite noticeably. The objects there are almost visualizations, but it's not like if I say to you now, visualize a candle, and you can probably get some sort of thing in your mind, right? And you intentionally did that, right? But these are not, when it says visualize infinite space, <laughs> no, it's not what happens. The fifth one is called the realm of infinite space, or actually the realm of limitless space. And it's an experience that you have that if you go to describe it, you would say, I was seeing or sensing this limitless space. So if you're visual, it will appear visually to you. But you get there by focusing on outward expansion. Basically, get a good fourth jhana and then find something you can expand without limit. My teacher Ayakema said, expand your body without limit. It doesn't matter what you expand. I had a student expand, uh, blow up a balloon, right, and follow it. Whatever you expand without limit, stay focused on the edges of that expansion and then pop, a vast infinite space appears before you. Don't look for the space. If you look for the space, you're not focused on the expansion and it won't happen, mm -hmm. right? If you just stay with the expansion out on the edges, out to infinity, then this vast space suddenly pops into being. And if you're visual, you see it. If you're not visual, you'll know it's there. Because I'm visual and see it, I can't really tell you how the people who aren't visual experience it. But yeah, this sense of a vast space. And so it's almost a visualization, but it's not you intentionally try and visualize vast space. It just pops in once you get your mind expanded far enough. Mm. The sixth one is the realm of infinite consciousness. And it's a shift from the space to your consciousness of that space. Your consciousness has to be as big as that space, right? If you're going to experience it. And so your consciousness has to be infinite. And so it's a subtle shift. It's more like you go from experiencing the space before you to getting absorbed into the space and being aware of your consciousness of space. Your consciousness becomes infinite. Your mind becomes infinite. The seventh is the realm of nothingness. This is the one that the Buddha learned from his first teacher. And the trick there is to shift your attention from the consciousness to the content of that consciousness, which turns out to be nothing. There is no content. The sense of space is long gone. And so now can you find a sense of nothing and just focus on it? It's kind of a small nothing at first, but if you stay with it, it gets to be a big nothing. You know, you look at it, there it is, and you look towards the edge, and there's nothing over towards where you thought the edge was. And then you look at the other, and there's nothing over there, and it's a big nothing. Usually dark. People who stumble into this state by accident, usually freak out. They feel they've fallen into the void. Mm. No, they've just fallen into the seventh jhana is all. I've had a number of students report 
you know, falling in, usually on the three-month course at IMS or something like that, where they had a lot of time to meditate. And then when they come back there intentionally, it's like, oh, yeah, I was, this is right where I was. Only it wasn't scary this time. What was scary was fear of the unknown. What's happened to me? Well, I'm in a big, dark room, right? That's already right. scary. Yeah, a real big, dark room, and there are no walls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the eighth is called the realm of neither perception or non-perception. And, well, it's a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. So it makes it very difficult for me to talk about it, other than to say that it's a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it, but you know that you're in a state that has no characteristics by which you can describe it. And it's also much more fragile than the other ones. And this is what the Buddha learned from his second teacher. So that is, of course, an intriguing and confusing non-definition. Yeah. The good news about the eighth is if you get good at the seven, it's fairly easy to find the eighth. It's not hard to find it. It's hard to stay there because it is so subtle. I practiced for almost a year and then was on a month-long retreat before I ever got into eight and knew I could stay for as long as I wanted and stayed for about half an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd gotten that skill with all the others much, much, much quicker. And then I've seen lists that include a ninth jhana. Ninth jhana is spoken of in the suttas. It's referred to as the cessation of feeling and perception. Now, is this Nirodha Samapati or something yes. different than that? Yeah, it goes by lots of names. Ninth jhana, highest consciousness cessation, Nikaya number nine. So it gets a lot of different names, but it's a state of suspended animation. You might have heard about, you know, these Indian mystics. They put them in a coffin, bury them in the ground for a week, dig them up, and they're fine. Yeah, so they put themselves into this state. It's actually possible to see someone go into this state in this great movie called Shortcut to Nirvana, which is a documentary on the Kumbh Maya Festival Mm -hmm. that happened in, I believe it was 2000, 2001. There's a Japanese woman climbs down into this pit that they've dug. They pull the ladder out. They put roofing tin over it. They cover it with dirt. The documentary goes on. Three days later, they come back, sweep off the dirt, put the ladder down. She climbs out all happy. She obviously put herself into that state to stay there for three days. And the internal experience of this is essentially lights out. Yeah, it's being unconscious. Yeah, it's and interestingly enough, it appears that the first Vasudhi Maga Jhana is actually an entrance into this state. Because in the first Vasudhi Maga Jhana, there's no bodily awareness, there's no hearing, no sounds, and there's no passage of time, mm. which totally fits the description of Naroda. And yet, if we're starting at Naroda, how could there be jhanas after that? We're already kind of completely shut down. Well, according to Venerable Pau Auk, you can't tell where you were until you come out. Uh, and when you come out, if you look at your heart center, you can see a reflection of the factors of the jhana you were just in. Okay, and that's the best I can do because I'm not a, jhana, a power jhana practitioner. Yeah, fascinating. A lot of people talk about weird experiences with the jhana. Daniel Ingram was on the show and was talking quite a bit about strange manifestations with jhanic concentration. Not necessarily difficult states, but just weird stuff. And Shinzen talked about that as well. What's your experience with that? 
My personal experience is more that I'm super aware of my sensory input afterwards. I can still see those pansies outside the meditation hall where I got good at jhana number eight. You know, first time I had a really good eighth jhana, I walk outside and I look at those pansies and they're, you know, burned in my mind. So, yeah, there's a very definite heightened sensory awareness. Colors are much more vivid and sounds are more beautiful, you know, things like that. That's probably the most common thing that happens. There certainly have been numerous reports of people having enhanced ESP experiences post jhana. Now, when I say ESP, extrasensory perception, I'm not claiming that it's a proven thing. What I'm saying is there certainly is an experience that people have that they want to label with ESP. And whatever those experiences are, whether it's real genuine scientifically not yet discovered telepathy or it's just people picking up subtle cues or wishful thinking or whatever it is that definitely gets enhanced by strong concentration so i mean this is even talked about in the suttas there are two of the supernormal powers that are described that include knowing the minds of others and hearing sounds at a distance and these are both common esp experiences Whatever they are. And in fact, uh, the suttas have a whole list of what we might call magical powers or superpowers that one gains by doing the jhanas. So is that something that you've tried or you find interesting at all? I definitely found it interesting. I would put them into three categories, this list. The first thing is the mind-made body. And it says, from this body, one creates another body, complete in all its form, defect in no parts. Which, of course, is, yeah, right. What? Huh? (laughs) Okay. Let's set that one aside. The next is the magical powers. Walking on water, flying through the air, being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing, etc. So matrix-type experiences. Yeah. And so I was talking with one of my friends when I was teaching in Portugal who's into lucid dreaming. And he mentioned that it's possible to go directly from a waking state into a lucid dream. It's called wake-induced lucid dreaming. Wild. So, of course, I asked Mr. Google about that. And the state you need to get yourself into in order to go from waking into wild is just like what you have coming out of the fourth jhana. So, I'm saying that learning to make a mind-made body is learning the wake-induced lucid dreaming technique. And what do you do in a lucid dream? Oh, how about fly through the air, walk on water, etc., etc. So I'm claiming that those are actually lucid dreams. Extremely vivid, yeah. seemingly realistic. And you've got dreams. control. Yeah. There's a sutta that backs that up. It's in the Numerical Discourses 3.60. And in that, the Buddha and the Brahman are having a conversation. And the Brahman says that these magical powers only benefit the one who does them. And the Buddha agrees. So it sounds like it's a private experience. Sure. One assumes it's not happening in objective reality at that point, which makes sense to us modern Westerners. Right. I'm curious, though, they do use that phrase that it's helpful or useful to the doer of them. Right. And so have you found these to be useful or... Do you see them actually having a positive effect? 
Well, those in particular, the only walking on water I ever did was one time in Sweden in the winter. <laughs> it's really easy. Yeah, somehow we can all do that one. Right, exactly. So, no, I haven't found that particularly useful other than to say that when one begins to realize what the mind can manufacture out of nothing, then you maybe pay a little more careful attention to actually picking up what's actually happening as opposed to your wishful thinking and so forth. So in the sense that one begins to step beyond believing everything that runs through your mind, then that can be very helpful. But other than that, I can't really say. So that's the first two. The next two we talked about, the uh, knowing the minds of others and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma is ESP, whatever ESP is. Might be more lucid dreaming. Might be more lucid dreaming. I'm guessing it's the whatever average person in the San Francisco Bay Area is experienced when they say they have ESP experiences. And we don't know whether that's scientific or wishful thinking or anything in between. Yeah. Okay, and the last two are usually given remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. What Stephen Batchelor had to say was basically that in a culture where it's steeped in multiple lifetimes, these two are phrased in such a way that would really appeal to the depths of understanding that actions have consequences. Mm-hmm. In other words, they weren't meant to be taken literally. But the first one is personal. I am the result of a lot of past actions that I have done. And the second one, everybody reaps what they sow. And that that's what's going on there. Uh, we could go into quite a long discussion of those two if you wanted to. <laughs> but maybe mm-hmm. we could save that in some maybe other time. Maybe another one. So these immaterial jhanas are, of course, quite powerful and fascinating. And yet what I understand you to be saying is they're not actually necessary levels for charging your insight practice up to the level where it can be truly awakening. Right. It would appear that it would be good if you can actually get to the first jhana to practice them well enough to get to the fourth. Okay. And, you know, That's fairly doable. Not everybody, but a lot of people, you know, given enough time, enough retreats, can get to the first four. If you can do five through eight, or even just five, then you're going to have deeper level of concentration. But it doesn't appear that it's necessary that coming out of four, you have deep enough concentration. Now, there is a sutta that indicates even coming out of the first jhana is sufficient. Though I personally find coming out of the first jhana is too much agitation for it to be that useful. But you're still pretty concentrated. and Yeah, you're more concentrated than you were at access concentration. So you'd get a boost right there. But if you can't get to the jhanas, almost everybody can get to access concentration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if you're not a jhana practitioner, get to access concentration and then do your vipassana practice. That will enhance your vipassana practice quite a bit. Now, here one is living in the world, having a job, having a family, having house payments, and so on. Are jhanas practical for someone who is not going on long retreats, or are they very retreat-dependent? For almost everyone, it requires you to go on a retreat to learn the jhanas. It requires that you have a good daily practice before going on that retreat, and it requires you have a good daily practice to keep them, take the jhanas home from that retreat. 
So, yeah, your spiritual practice has to be a pretty high priority in your life for this to work. But it is possible to go on a retreat, learn the jhanas, and bring them home and keep them for, let's say, some period of time. Dependent upon, one, how well you learn them in the retreat, how well you know exactly what to do and what they feel like, and two, how good is your daily practice. If your daily practice is an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening every day, yeah, no problem. You can keep it just like you had on the retreat. If it's an hour once a day, yeah, you keep it for quite a while. If it's 45 minutes, five days a week, yeah, yeah you, you might keep them for a few months. If it's once a week for 45 minutes, nah, they're gone. So what's coming up for me is I just want to come back to the importance of the jhanas. How are they important for someone who wants to meditate or has a powerful meditation practice? Why should I care about the jhanas? They are a skill, like all skill, they have to be learned and practiced. They are a skill that if you can develop some mastery, they will enhance your spiritual practice and repay the effort you put into learning them and manifesting them. They'll pay quite big dividends. Not everyone manages to learn the jhanas. You know, they're not for everybody. If the jhanas required multitasking, I wouldn't be anywhere in the ballpark. You know, I just can't multitask. But because the opposite of a multitasker, I'm really good at doing one thing at a time, they came quite easily to me. So if you find that these states are accessible, they're well worth the time and effort because the mind state you have coming out of these states is such that your investigation of reality is going to be definitely very enhanced. So they're optional on the spiritual path, but they're such a good option that if you can manage to manifest them, it's going to be very, very worthwhile. Thank you so much, Lee. It's been great to talk to you today. Oh, my pleasure. I totally enjoy talking on this subject. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. 
The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>